October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, episode number 17, the first state conference. Last time, we talked about James White's desire to get the review off of his shoulders, being legally liable for the whole thing. This sparked the debate over organization and what the Bible said about organization, pitting Roswell Cottrell against James. This culminated in the landmark conference of September 1860, where everyone came together in a compromise that would incorporate the review, but leave organization of the church to be fought over another time. And by another time, I of course mean right now. Okay, this is the second episode of our trilogy on how this movement went from a ragtag collection of believers into the Seventh-day Adventist denomination. I guess if this is the second episode, it makes it the Empire Strikes Back episode, which means it'll be the best episode in this trilogy. It was the best one. Don't argue with me. Moving on. On December 20th, 1860, South Carolina became the first state to secede from the Union, which Stephen Colbert memorably trumpeted as the state's motto, first to secede. It's a play on words. Anyways, a few weeks later, on January 12th, Ellen White had a vision at a new Seventh-day Adventist church in Parkville, Michigan. Ellen White reported to the congregation what she saw. Quote, There is not a single person here who has ever dreamed of the trouble that is coming upon this land. People are making sport of the secession of South Carolina, but I have just been shown that a large number of states are going to join that state, and there will be a most terrible war. In this vision, I have seen large armies of both sides gathered on the field of battle. I heard the booming of the cannon and saw the dead and dying on every hand. Ellen White looked around the room before concluding, quote, There are those in this house that will lose sons in that war, end quote. Present indeed were two men, a judge and a factory owner, who shook their heads at such drama. People in the North thought that, should it come to war, they were going to march down there and go all Old Testament on those hillbillies and come home. But one year later, Loughborough tells us both men had lost sons in the war. Now, we're not going to be talking about the American Civil War or the war between the states for a couple of episodes yet. But it's important to understand that everything we're going to be covering in the next couple of episodes is happening in the shadow of this conflict. Perhaps every two or three issues of the Review in 1861 had some article that railed against the evils of slavery. My personal theory is that the war helped those, like James White and John Loughborough, who wanted the church to become more organized. First, nearly every Adventist was an abolitionist. The war gave them one more thing to unite them at a time when differences on the direction of the movement could have deeply divided them. The second reason I think the war helped the cause of organization was that the war served as a living object lesson that large movements need increasingly efficient organization in order to win. There would be troops drilling everywhere, trains moving massive amounts of materiel and manpower around, and massive sectors of private industry rapidly retooling to support the effort. No one would come to personify this more than Edwin Stanton, Lincoln's Secretary of War. That guy was crazy good at logistics. It's hard to imagine that Avenus didn't take notes. So just keep that in the back of your head. 
You will recall that the September 1860 conference declared that the review should be legally incorporated. Great. But, as J.N. Andrews had told the conference, there were no such laws in Michigan that allowed them to organize. That is, until March 1861. Yay, what perfect timing. Thus, in April of 1861, a conference was convened in Battle Creek, just days before Beauregard's guns opened fire on Fort Sumter and began the Civil War. It brought the usual gang back together again, by which I mean Joseph Bates chairing the meeting, Uriah Smith serving as secretary, and James White, J.H. Wagner, Moses Hull, John Loughborough, John Byington, and so on. The purpose of this conference was essentially to implement the resolutions of the September 1860 conference. So they voted to establish the Publishing Association, changing its name, meanwhile, from the Advent Review Publishing Association to the Seventh-day Adventist Publishing Association for obvious reasons. They also recommended that said publishing association build a new brick building to house the press and that shares in this publishing association be sold for $10 a pop. And that's all good and fine. What the September 1860 conference did was resolve the principle of organization. It was, looking back, inevitable that the church would organize. You'll remember that the September conference only authorized the legal incorporation of the review, not the entire church. Church buildings were still owned by private individuals who could do with them what they wanted. So it was a victory for James White and co., but certainly not a complete one. I guess you could say that the D-Day landings were successful, but you still have to march all the way to Berlin. So the church was in a transitional stage in 1861. They had a name, they had a legal business in this newfangled publishing association, but they weren't, legally speaking, a church. They had scant organization. They were just a bunch of people who built small church buildings on people's property. Even more than that was this whole system of resolving things with conferences. At the April 1861 conference, the delegates, let's face it, they were mostly delegates from Michigan, voted to buy a new tent ASAP. It was already April, and the people who were going to be on tour with it needed it as soon as possible to get the most use out of it. There wasn't enough time to put a notice in the review and raise money and then go send them to buy a tent, so the Battle Creek Church voted to pay for it out of their systematic benevolence fund. Remember Sister Betsy? The Battle Creek Church was, after all, the only one this group could speak for. They couldn't make the other churches do anything, so they simply bought the tent and would then pass a resolution to invite other Adventist churches to reimburse them. Yeah, so let's hope they all do that. Anyone with half an eye can see that this system wasn't sustainable. When Sister Betsy was announced, all Battle Creek could do is recommend it to other churches. When they voted on a name, they could only recommend it to other churches. These conferences were increasingly staffed by local Michigan people, and they had no real authority. Whenever a conference in Battle Creek made a big decision, James White or others would have to travel around and convince local churches to agree with the things the conference decided. The system worked only so long as... Everyone wanted it to work. But what would happen if Battle Creek made a decision that half of the church didn't like? In a very real way, 
The stage of the Adventist church was very similar to the early Christian church. There was a church in Jerusalem, in Antioch, in Alexandria, in Rome. All of them in these big cities drew the outlying areas into their orbit. The early popes arose in part from a demand for some sort of central organization. Now, you may or may not agree that the papacy was the best solution to that problem, but it was very similar to the problem Adventists now faced. There was definitely a need for some kind of central organization. We can't even imagine what that looks like at this point, but it needs to exist. Of that, James White and others were convinced. So, the final thing the April 1861 conference did, unanimously, was to commission an essay on church organization to be published in the review. While that was being written, the Seventh-day Adventist Publishing Association was officially incorporated on May 3, 1861. When the promised essay on organization finally arrived in June, the authors, a group of leaders from the April conference, made one big suggestion. We need state conferences. Until now, they've been having a lot of general conferences, which were supposed to be meetings with delegates from as many churches as possible, but of course has been filled with mostly Michigan people. That was not so good because when something was voted upon, it really only reflected the beliefs of Michigan believers, and they had no way of knowing whether others would agree with them. So, delegates from the churches in any given state should get together in their own conferences. There were several smaller suggestions in the essay, too. First, these state conferences should assign credentials to pastors every year. This served a pretty simple purpose. It would let a pastor speak in courthouses or schoolhouses that were naturally resistant to crazy religious people. Having a letter from a state conference would show that they're a member in good standing, a.k.a. not crazy. It would also cut down on the actual crazy people, who showed up at a church on any given Sabbath and pretended to be James White's best buddy. The essay also recommended that churches keep a written record of their business and also a list of members. What novel ideas! Basically, these practical suggestions were to increase efficiency, unity, and cut down on crazy, because nobody wants crazy. The summer of 1861 was filled with news of the Civil War. Union troops were getting walloped in the opening battles, especially the Battle of Bull Run on July 23rd. The North was alarmed that the South would simply march on Washington after that victory. And with this in the air, Ellen White had another vision on August 3rd in Roosevelt, New York. Incapable of mincing words, the horror of the Civil War and slavery especially weighed heavily upon her. Quote, Slavery has long been a curse to this nation. The fugitive slave law was calculated to crush out of man every noble, generous feeling of sympathy that should arise in his heart for the oppressed and suffering slave. It was in direct opposition to the teaching of Christ. End quote. She recounted a vision of the Battle of Bull Run and concluded that God was working behind the scenes. First, to punish the North for so long indulging slavery but ultimately to defeat the South. She wrote, quote, God had this nation in his own hand and would suffer no victories to be gained faster than he ordained and no more losses to the northern men than in his wisdom he saw fit, End quote. 
Undoubtedly, this was comforting to the frightened citizens of the North, having been so violently disabused of the illusion of their cocky superiority. It was all in God's hands, and he would enable the North to prevail in the end. Yet Ellen White's purpose wasn't to provide commentary on the war, but to encourage the church. In the time of war, famine, and economic turmoil, she saw that, quote, God's people began to press together and to cast aside their little difficulties, end quote. She hoped that the war would wake people up to the things that really matter in life, and so Adventists needed to be ready to focus these people on their gospel mission. And then she turned to organization. She was dire, quote, Unless the churches are so organized that they can carry out and enforce order, they have nothing to hope for in the future. End quote. She said that those pastors who resisted organization lacked moral courage. She chastised those who were for organization but had kept quiet about it. Quote, they were afraid of losing their influence. End quote. Connecting the war with the church struggle for organization. Ellen concluded, the time for ministers to stand together is when the battle goes hard. Ellen White's tone well illustrates how far the language on the topic of organization had shifted. A year and a half before, it was just a suggestion. Now it seemed to be a moral imperative. What changed? For starters, the need for organization had only become more apparent. As I said, the September 1860 conference established the principle of organization, but it didn't do much to actually help organize anything but the review. And with many pastors taking sides, the stakes were much, much higher. Ellen White's tone reflects the anxiety that the church could have its own civil war over this issue. It needed to be resolved and fast. If these differences were left to fester, if walls were allowed to be built between people and churches, then it would be harder to resolve this without the newborn church being split in half. Ellen White wasn't reacting to a Roswell Cottrell, but to a bunch of little Cottrells who feared that organization would lead the Seventh-day Adventist church to become Babylon, or the anti-church. A big reason for the shift to a stronger tone was because Ellen White had received that vision on December 23, 1860, which had assured her that the Lord wanted the church to organize. But the new urgency for organization was also due to another reason. Cottrell had accepted the decision of September 1860 conference. If they voted for organization, he was on board because he believed in the mission of the church. So anyone who opposed organization at this point was coming up against the September conference which just illustrated the precarious church structure that they had been operating under. What's the purpose of these conferences if people can just ignore them if they feel like it? In what sense would this church remain united? Oh, and speaking of Cottrell, where did he weigh in on this? He wrote in September of 1861 that he was as sold out to the Adventist movement as ever before. Quote, I only regret my faults and errors. I sincerely desire to counteract and obliterate all the wrong influence I have exerted. We must present to the enemies of the truth a firm and united phalanx. Union we must have, and union we shall have. End quote. If you were to forget yourself for a moment, you'd think he was making a speech about the Civil War. 
Does this mean Cottrell changed his mind about organization? I don't think so. But it means that he saw the disunity of the church as a greater sin than organization. The church decided to organize. So when Cottrell had to choose between the cause he loved and his opinion, he chose the cause. Now, that's an oversimplification. But what did that say about those in 1861 who still opposed organization? James White jumped back into the fray, naturally. Reporting from a trip he and Ellen were taking through the East, he lamented, quote, the influence of a stupid uncertainty upon the subject of organization, end quote. Quick editor's note, stupid in the 19th century was not the insult it has become today. James explained the situation a little more than his wife did. It seems that Cottrell's influence endured in causing a lot of believers to refuse organization. It seems the believers in Pennsylvania held a conference and rejected organization outright. James says that the believers in Ohio were dreadfully shaken by the disagreement. James doesn't lay it all at Cottrell's feet, however. He lays a bit of the blame, like his wife, with those ministers who didn't speak up on the issue. And he mentions J.N. Andrews by name. The refusal by many leading members of the organization to speak up for organization led other ministers to keep quiet about it, too. When James and Ellen were at the Roosevelt Church, a leading man named Wheeler kept his seat when James asked if all who were in favor of organization would stand. And because Wheeler sat, others who even sympathized with James were too afraid to stand. James said, quote, the infection was deep and stupefying, end quote. And it's not like those opponents of organization were writing in the review to discuss this issue. There was just the sound of James White and a few others championing organization in the review, and then there was silence. And that's what irritated James. No sign of life, no way to persuade people, no way to know what people were thinking. Either they were quiet for it or they were quiet against it. Quote, they know the review is open for them to speak freely, he wrote. In a way, the struggle over organization only served to prove why organization was necessary. No one had any illusions that once the church was organized properly, that no one would ever disagree again. They couldn't fix everything. But the problem was that there were no mechanisms to make decisions or settle disagreements. Every person, every church could do whatever they wanted, which sounds nice unless you're trying to lead this group of people. How do you get a large organization to move in the same direction if you have to persuade every single person that this is the right way to move? How do you accomplish your mission as a church in any coordinated way? By and large, only the leaders could appreciate this problem. As usual, the solution was up to Battle Creek. The conference that was held on October 5th, 1861, built on the one that had decided to incorporate a publishing association the year before. The delegates, which included James, Joseph Bates, Uriah Smith, Loughborough, Cornell, Moses Hull, and other celebrities, immediately got to the good stuff. Gurney, Joseph Bates' old friend, proposed a church covenant that all churches could adopt. It was short and sweet. The church would be, quote, taking the name Seventh-day Adventist, and covenanting to keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, end quote. Who could object to that? No one, apparently. And that was the problem. The motion was carried, but what bothered James, as in the April 1861 conference, 
is that everyone didn't vote. There was no discussion on it. Things were passed unanimously, even while a, a good chunk of the delegates were abstaining. He wanted discussion, to know that if people have doubts, they can air them instead of going home and murmuring about what that heretic James White voted for. So they all agreed to rescind their vote and start over. Still, the same people spoke up, and James White finally blurted out, quote, If there is no one to raise any objections to this step, I have almost a mind to raise some myself so that the subject may be addressed. End quote. Okay, so the issue with this covenant idea is that it would seem to be too similar to a creed, like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, those things. James White beautifully articulated the problem with creeds. You make this statement of beliefs, you have your people recite it, memorize it, etc., and it can never change. Well, the Seventh-day Adventist Church was used to changing. They learned about Sabbath, about death, and so on over time. What should happen, James wondered, if we make a creed and then the Lord shows the church something different? So no creeds. And if we make this covenant, James said, someone out there is going to complain that we're trying to be like other churches, trying to be like Babylon. Now, John Loughborough's response to this was great. He said that with that logic, you can complain that we're trying to be like other churches or Babylon because we meet in churches, right? Because we have pews and hymnals and we use our Bible and we have pulpits and these sort of things. Cornell chimed in too. Yeah, and we have Sabbath schools and Bible classes like other churches, and yet no one accuses us of being Babylon for those reasons. I suppose I should read the most famous statement Loughborough seems to have made. It's the one that's often most quoted. Because it happened here on this subject of creeds. Quote, the first step of apostasy is to get up a creed, telling us what we shall believe. The second is to make that creed a test of fellowship. The third is to try members by that creed. The fourth, to denounce as heretics those who do not believe that creed. And fifth, to commence persecution against such. End quote. The idea of covenants passed again, followed by a flurry of other items. Most importantly, they voted to recommend that the churches in Michigan form the Michigan Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. It would be led by a chair, a clerk, and a committee of three people, comprising lay people and pastors. James and Ellen White were from Maine. Loughborough was from New York, Uriah Smith from New Hampshire, and Joseph Bates from Massachusetts. And yet the first Seventh-day Adventist conference was in Michigan. Today, every state or group of states has a conference. The idea of a conference wasn't unique to Adventists, of course. The United Methodist Church has conferences as well as others. But it was a huge step. In September 1860, they voted to organize a publishing association. In October 1861, they voted to organize churches into conferences. Only one big step was left, to organize conferences into a general conference. But we'll pause there and talk about that final transitional step for organization next week. First, we have to end on a sadder note. We've pretty much covered 1861 in this episode, but this event that I'm going to refer to happened back at the end of 1860. So it should have gone at the beginning, but I didn't want to depress anyone. Along with the war, this event also shaped 1861 for the Whites. Ellen and James's newborn son, John Herbert White, the one who was born just before the September 1860 conference, died. He was 12 weeks and one day old. 
It was a massive blow, as you can imagine, to James and Ellen. With all that was going on, James just broke down. One Sabbath, on his way to church, James just couldn't take it anymore and just started crying right there in the street. It was possible that James and Ellen were expecting a girl or perhaps just following a common enough practice of not naming the child at birth. Because we're not even sure if they named him John Herbert while he was alive. But the name appears in the little guy's obituary, where James wrote, quote, Painful to witness the sufferings of the child for nearly four weeks. Painful to have him buried from our sight. End quote. James preached at the funeral because he couldn't find another preacher. John Herbert had contracted erysipelas, and there was nothing they could do. For 24 days, they prayed, they tried medicines, everything. And Ellen White, many, many years later, would comfort another grieving mother, sharing her pain and hope. Quote, We close their eyes, inhabit them for the tomb, and lay them away from our sight. But hope bears our spirits up. We are not parted forever, but shall meet the loved ones who sleep in Jesus. They shall come again from the land of the enemy. The life-giver is coming. Myriads of holy angels escort him on his way. He bursts the bands of death, breaks the fetters of the tomb. The little infants come forth immortal from their dusty beds. They immediately wing their way to their mother's arms. They meet again, nevermore depart. And to that we say, Amen. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So... If you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.